we have uh, many different leaders in our life. That might be bosses, those might be teachers, those might be parents. Obviously, we have governmental authority. We have many different leaders, and oftentimes, we don't, we don't like this. We don't like having leaders. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. We might think that we can do things better. Uh, we might just mistrust them. We might want freedom. And so we don't really want a leader in our life because a leader equals that we are not the ultimate say. Uh, we, we look to ourself. We want to figure out well, how do I want life to be? What does my heart tell me life should look like? And then kind of pursue and live out that. And really the spirit of our age right now is very anti-leadership, anti-hierarchy of any sort. We don't like authority. We don't like leadership. And again, there's a lot of different reasons that that is the case. There may be leadership failures. There may be abuses. There may be um, just a lot of stuff on Twitter. There's all sorts of reasons that we don't like leadership. And you might even have particular kinds of, maybe there's some that you like, but not your boss, or not the government, or not, but we don't often like leaders in our life or authority. But as we talk about kingdom community, implied in that is that there's a king. Implied in that is that there is an authority that there is an ultimate leader, that we are not our own, that our lives actually must be submitted to something different than us, bigger than us, outside of us. And really, if we want to experience kingdom community, if we want to experience all the beautiful stuff that we have talked about, there's no way to experience that without us aligning ourselves to the king. And I know some of you are just kind of joining and just uh, maybe in the last week or the last couple weeks, this might even be your first time or maybe even online joining us, but we've talked about a lot of amazing things that it looks like to experience kingdom community. We've talked about the way that we can be humble in our relationships, that there's grace and forgiveness. We've talked about the, the patience and how God is patient with us and works things over time and that faithfulness is better than flashiness. And we've talked about the power that God gives to us to live these things out. We've talked about all sorts of things that I, I suspect as you hear, you go, yeah, that would be great. I want that. I want the community that that shapes. I want the relationships that that forms. But we can't have any of that without the king. It's the same with many things in life, that without submitting ourselves to an authority of some sort, we don't get to experience the desired results. If you've ever played sports and um, you had someone, or maybe even with music, someone that was a, a teacher or an instructor, you might say, yeah, I want to be able to play like that. I want to be able to, to, I want to, be able to run like that. I want to be able to play football like that. I want to be able to play basketball like that. I want to be able to play the guitar like that. I want to be able to play the piano like that. Whatever it is, you might see the results and go, that would be great. But you can't have it. Just showing up and saying, now I will play the piano. It won't work. You can't just show up on the basketball court and say, now I know how to do this. That won't work. You have to submit yourself to the authority. You have to submit yourself to the coach. You have to submit yourself to the king in order to experience the results or the life that they can bring. But our dislike of authority and our dislike of leadership transfers into how we think of God as well. So if you have a problem with leaders or authority in any way, a lot of time the same reasons for that get transferred knowingly or unknowingly into our relationship with God, where God speaks things and says, I know better than you know. And we go, oh, I'm not sure about that. God challenges us in ways that are different than what we naturally desire. God will want to transform and change things in our life. Leadership or authority should never leave us the same, should always move us beyond where we are. God does all that same stuff, but oftentimes we are resistant to that as well. God wants to lead us, send us, change us, but it's oftentimes hard. I, I don't know, you know everybody in here what you're going through, but if you think about your life, 
Where are areas, maybe that you're even aware of or conscious of, where you know, man, it's really hard for me to submit to Jesus as king. It's really hard for me to entrust myself to his leadership and what he says and speaks. And so sometimes what happens is we just ignore him altogether, right? Sometimes we just ignore. I don't, I don't actually want to listen to what he says. It's easier not to have to kind of constantly be in conflict or in my soul be in turmoil. So I just am going to ignore Sometimes we excuse, we kind of say, well, this is all right, but maybe this is okay. I, you know, I know I should do this, but, or sometimes, maybe this is true for many of us, we do what he says. We say, okay, you're the king, fine. But it's kind of a begrudging attitude that we might have. We know that we're supposed to follow Jesus. We know we're supposed to submit to Jesus and we do it, but we do it uh, begrudgingly. We do it not necessarily joyfully and willingly. So here's the question that I want us to look at today as we talk about one of our final weeks in kingdom community. How can we accept his leadership in our life? How can we, even more than accept, desire his leadership in our life? Want it? How can we eagerly say, you're the king and I want the life that you bring. You're the king, and I want you. You're the king, and I want to listen to your voice and what you say. I want you to be king over my life. How, how can we do that? How can we have that posture and that attitude and ultimately then that life? How can we have that? Because without that, we'll never have kingdom community. Without that, we'll never experience the life that can be there with the king. And that's true for all of our relationships. It's true for your just joy and change in your own life. You will never be able to experience what he can do and what life with him can look like and what relationships with him can look like if we don't willingly give ourselves to the king. How do we do that? To answer that, I want to look at first just who the king is. And what keeps us from coming to him and what life looks like when we do come to him. So we're going to start with this question. Who is the king? Because in order to trust him, in order to submit to him, in order to follow him, we have to know who he is. It's really hard to do that if you don't know who someone is, right? If you don't know someone, it's hard to say, I will follow you wherever you take me. This is part of why sometimes we mistrust leaders in general, or maybe if you even think about uh, wherever you land politically, it, it can be hard to trust our political leaders because we're not really sure, what is it that you really want? What it, what's really going on behind closed doors? What really is your agenda? Who really are you? So we need to know him in order to trust him. But in reality, oftentimes we actually miss the full picture of who God is. We might know things about God, but oftentimes we miss the full picture of who he is. So it's actually hard to then trust him. And as we look at the beginning of this passage, Jesus asks a question to the religious leaders who were the experts, the people that were studying the Old Testament all the time. But he asks a question which reveals there's some things about God that you've been missing. There's some things about the Messiah, the one that is promised to come and lead, that you are missing. As we might know God, we may study God, and yet miss some things and then not be able to trust him and know him and submit to him in the way we should. So here's how this starts. Luke 20, the whole passage we're looking at is 41 through 21, but he says this. Then he said to them, how can they say that they is just the, the people that study the Old Testament, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? That was one of the titles, uh, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago, um, of the Messiah. How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his Son. Now, this is sort of like a, a debate that 
probably you've never had with your friends, right? <laughs> that you're like, yes, I, that's exactly what we were talking about yesterday over beers. How can David say, the Lord says to my Lord, right? So you probably have not thought about this question before, okay? But I'm just going to show you the psalm where Jesus gets this from. And here's, here it is, Psalm 110. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord, which that name for Lord, when it's all caps like that, is Yahweh. Okay? It's God Almighty, his personal name. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. So Yahweh says to another Lord figure this. And the Lord figure here, David, who's the one writing the psalm, says, Yahweh says to my, David's, Lord this. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus' point here, that's subtle, but we'll look at why he's bringing up this whole psalm. Jesus' point is, how could David call whoever this person is, which is the Messiah, known as the son of David, how could, how could David call his son his Lord? How would David say, my descendant is my Lord? Usually, David would be considered the greater one. So how is it that whoever the descendant is, is the Lord? Listen, your grandfather probably has never called you Lord. Right? That's kind of David's, that's kind of Jesus' point. He's saying, how would it be that David would call the son of David his Lord? How does that make any sense? Now, we know that the reason that makes sense is because Jesus is this my Lord. And so David is saying that the Father God speaks to the Son God, and not the Son God, not like an Egyptian thing, but the Son of God. Now we're getting all confused, right? <laughs> what did you learn at church? Well, there's a sun God, apparently. Um, but what he is saying is Jesus is the son of David because he's the Messiah. But even within this psalm, there's a hint that there's something more. That the Messiah, the one that was promised, was going to be not just this great leader that was going to deliver Israel. There's something more that must be true of him, where even David, the greatest king of Israel, calls him Lord. Now, Jesus doesn't really unfold and answer the whole thing, but we know later, obviously, it's because Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm more than just the son of David, a descendant. I'm more than just the deliverer and the Messiah. I am, I am God himself. I'm bigger than you think I am. You've missed part of who I am, even though if you were to actually look carefully, you would see that there's more that's often there. But I want to read the rest of this because Jesus is quoting from this passage to help really them see who the king is. We miss the big picture, but let's look at even just who it says that the king is. Sit at my right hand. That's authority and power until I make your enemies your footstool. Such a, a great image to make your enemies your footstool. That's, you know, that's to say, like, I'm, I'm gonna, if you have an enemy, that's great trash talk that you can bring in. Like, I'm going to make you my footstool, right? That's a great language to say, you're just going to be the person that I put my dirty toes on. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. There's so much in here I can't get into, but Melchizedek was one of the first priests that shows up in the Bible um, that wasn't from a, the line, like a, a hereditary thing, but was this priest that shows up out of nowhere. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, all of this, Jesus brings up this passage to say there's some things about who the Messiah is, some things about who the king is that you're missing, that you haven't fully seen. So who is the king? There's a couple things from that psalm that Jesus quotes that we can see. One is that he is a king filled with power to talk about his rule over all the earth. 
And to talk about his judgment over the nations and the leaders is to say that this is a powerful king. This is a powerful king that doesn't just rule his locale, that doesn't just rule his government and his area, but he is a king of the world, which is part of what Jesus is saying is you're, you're missing something about the Messiah. He's not just this political leader that's going to come and deliver Israel, but he is a cosmic king. There's something that is being missed of all of the authority and all of the power and all of the justice that he brings. It's sometimes we can read some of that language about him piling up corpses and ruling over and making a footstool. But that's really to say that we live in a world that's filled with a lot of bad authority and a lot of bad leaders. But there is a greater king that has all power that will come and will bring justice and will use his power to destroy all of the evil kings and leaders that there are. He's a faithful king. When it says that he swears an oath, he swe- why do we swear? If you ever swear, if you ever say that I promise that this is going to happen, or if you ever, when you're a kid, you pinky promise or pinky swear, and you, you I don't even, there's like, I, you know, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. It's the most gruesome thing that, like, whoever taught that to kids? Did you ever say that when you were little? Cross my heart, hope to die. What? What kind of a weird satanic oath is this? Oh, that's not all. I will stick a thousand needles in my eye. Like, that's intense. Okay, so I promise that I will, you know, play with you. Okay, that's intense. Like, we make these oaths when, when we're trying to say, I'm faithful, and I'm not going to let you down. And the Bible actually brings up this verse later in Hebrews, talking about Jesus and saying that he swears. And why does he, he doesn't need to swear. It's not like he's unreliable, but he does that to assure us. What we see about who the king is, that he's a powerful king, but he's a faithful king. He's a king that says, I swear, because he wants to build in us a confidence for us to know, I'm not going to let you down. I am for you. I will be for you. I am now, but I will continue to be. He's a faithful king that wants us to have a confidence. And this was a unique combination. And and it really was a combination that didn't exist outside of this passage. Psalm 110 says that he is a king, but he will also be a priest. Those were distinct offices in Israel. You had priests and you had kings You had prophets, you had different roles that people played, and they didn't go together. But this passage speaks of a king who will also be a priest. And the priest had different roles, but essentially the role of the priest is to bring God to people and to bring people to God. It was this kind of intermediary, someone that would connect God and humans together. Someone that understood the human condition and themselves was human, and so could represent humans to God, and yet someone who was set apart and holy, and so could bring God to the people. He says, this king is a powerful king that rules over all, not just a particular location. This king is a faithful king that wants you to know he will always remain faithful. And this king is also a priest, one that is not only high and mighty, but that is also near. One that is not just all-powerful, but one that understands our condition, understands who we are, and wants to bring God into our life. Who is the king? Here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying the Messiah, and we know Jesus. So he's saying the Messiah, a.k.a. me, the Messiah is more than you think. He is the absolute king, the absolute priest who is faithful and near and assures that he will, therefore, since he is bigger than we think, even do more than we can comprehend. And if we miss who he is, we won't know him right. And if we don't know him right, we won't trust him rightly. And won't be able to then experience submitting to him as king in everything that he wants to do. Which leads us really to the second question, which is, what is it that keeps us from coming to the king? Jesus has said, here's who the king is. You miss it. But what keeps us from coming to the king? Now listen, it can be a lot of different things. 
And I don't even know, you know, in your life, the things that kind of are roadblocks for you coming to Jesus, submitting to Jesus, letting his authority rule your life. It can be all sorts of things. If you're not a Christian, that might be one of the scariest things that you can think of. There might be things about God and things that you're kind of interested in, but the idea of a king is like, what, I'm not British? Like, I don't want that, okay? Um, and if you're watching online and you are British, then okay, you have a queen, right? But, um, but there, there's, there's, that might be even one of the reasons that you're like, I'm unsure about the whole Christianity thing. But even for Christians, that's still, there's things that we're like, I like God in this way, and I like that he does this, and I like who he can be for me, but do I want a king? What keeps us from coming to him? It can be a lot. But oftentimes, oftentimes we might think that what's going to keep me from having Jesus as king in my life is that I kind of want to choose bad things in quotations. But it's a lot more than that. And one of the themes, if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Luke, one of the themes that we've talked about here over and over again, because he talks about it over and over and over again throughout the book, because he really wants us to get the idea, is that probably one of the main things that keeps us from coming to Jesus as king in our life is not the bad things as much as it is actually trying to just live a good life. Here's the next passage, what Jesus says. While all the people were listening, so they're listening to him talking about this Messiah, this king who is over all, While all the people are listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Those are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all kind of part of this religious crew. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, their churches, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Now, this is an insightful scene that helps us see what keeps us from coming to the king. Because we can live a really good life. If you think about even the images of what Jesus just showed there, of these religious leaders, you and I could live a really good life. We could pray. We could faithfully attend church. We could serve, obey, follow all the right rules, give, and and people looking at our life respect us. People looking at our life like us and invite us to things and honor us because of the holiness in our life. You could live a really, really good moral life, faithful at church, and everybody loves you. When people see you, they greet you. When people see you, they're, they're, they're so thankful for you. They want you to have the best seat. For them, that was usually the seats up close. At church today, it's usually the seats in the back. Those are the best seats. No one likes to sit up front, right? That you would have the best seat, and everybody really value you and your life. And yet, not love the king. You see, the people that were kept from coming to the king were the people that Jesus says were living a great life and everybody honored them. But in reality, they didn't love the king. What they loved, and that was the core, they love all of the stuff that we just talked about. You see, what's in their heart is not, I love the king. I want to honor the king. I want to follow the king. They are living a life that we would respect and value and commend, but they're doing it because they love not the king, but this. In a lot of ways, we could say that they don't love the king. They want to be the king. I mean, if you think about everything that they are receiving, the honor, the greeting, the perks, the kind of comfort lifestyle that comes with success and people, it really is they want to be king. They want to live as king. That is what will keep us from coming to the king, is that we will do all the right things and live a really good life, 
and get all the accolades from people and all the status and perks, but really in our heart of hearts, we want to be king. We want to be honored as king, which means this. A lot of times what happens then is we mistreat other people, usually the most vulnerable, which is why it says that they devour the house of widows. And Jesus doesn't really explain everything that that means, but it means something about they're taking advantage of the most vulnerable. It means something about even though everyone loves them and likes them and appreciates them and invites them and they're saying these great prayers and people are like, did you hear them pray? That was so amazing. They're actually taking advantage of widows because if you believe you're king, it's easy for you to mistreat those that are the most vulnerable that can't actually offer anything to you. It's easy to become selfish and want to just receive, 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 but not serve if you think that you're king. It's easy to have to be seen in what you do. That's the idea of praying these long prayers for show. Sometimes that, that creeps into our life. We might be doing all of these right things, but are we doing them because we love the king or because we want to be seen as doing the right things? Are we pouring our heart out in service because we love the king or because we want people to say, wow, is it actually show? This is why Jesus says this, beware. See, not everything that Jesus says starts with a preface of beware. When you think about beware, I don't know if you've ever you know, gone on a walk and walked by a fence and it has a beware of dog sign or something like that. But the point of that is to say, there's something here that you might miss if you're not paying attention. There's something actually in plain sight that's there that is dangerous to you that if you're not careful, will creep into your heart. That's what beware means. Why would he tell them beware? It's because he's saying, listen, you're naturally going to actually want this. You're naturally going to see people like this and think it's awesome. You're naturally going to desire what they have. You're, that, that will be all of our natural bent is to say, I want people to see me. I want people to see the good I'm doing. I want people to like me. I want people to know me. I want people to greet me. That will be our natural tendency. It will be, listen, part of what's so dangerous is it's dressed in really good values. No one looked at the Pharisees or the scribes or the religious leaders and said, man, these people are living such a bad life. I don't, we don't want to have anything to do with them. If they have all these people greeting them and all these people giving them the best seat, obviously people looked at their life and said, I want that. That's awesome. It's easy to dress it up in all sorts of good values. So here's what we should reflect on. Do you want to obey the king? Do you, let me just say the name Jesus, okay? So do you want to obey Jesus and follow Jesus? Or do you want to more so be seen obeying Jesus and following Jesus? Do you want, like when you think about your motivation, is your motivation that you want people to know him and honor him through your life? You want people to know him and honor him and you're concerned about that. Or would you be content if people just knew you and honored you? Do you love Jesus? Is that really your heart? I love him. I want people to honor him. I want people to know him. I want people to put him at the honored seat in their life. I want people to see the good that he does. I want people to hear from him. I want people to know his ways and his voice. Is that really what's in the heart? No matter what things you're doing externally, no matter how you serve, no matter what good you do or the bad things you don't do, is he the main thing, another way to even just think about this question is, is he the main thing that you focus on in your life? Is he the main thing that your life revolves around? Or would you be content to have everything that they had? Don't we aspire to that in some ways? 
Man, if you envision a life where wherever you go, people know you, and they and and not like in a bad way, but they know you in their and they're hot, they're like, hey, it's you. You're like, yes, it's me. And and they're they're happy to see you. And wherever you went, you always got the best seat. You walk into a restaurant, they're like, we have your table for you. You do? Yes, of course. It's you. <laughs> yes, it is me. I mean, and, and whenever you pray, people just go, that's so moving. I mean, we want that life. I mean, we might not think about it very often, but we want a life where people respect us and honor us and value us, and we get the best, we get the perks. I don't know if you've ever known anyone that like, um, you know, ha- owns a restaurant or something like that, and when you go in, they do give you some sort of special treatment, even if it's just like, hey, I brought you a drink, and you're like, yeah, I know the owner here. You know, How'd you get that? I know the owner. You know, you, that feels good to live life like that. Jesus is saying, this is what will keep us from coming to the king. At its core, wanting to be king. We might not think about it in that way, but we want to be king in our life. We want the accolades that come with it, the privileges that come with it, the benefits that come with it, the status that comes with it, the freedom that comes with it. We want to be king. That's what will keep us from coming to the king. The number one thing that will keep you from experiencing the life that Jesus has for you is probably not a list of all these bad things, but it's probably that at our heart's core, we just want to be king. So, next question is this. What does coming to the king look like then? That's what keeps us from the king. What does what, what coming to him actually look like? What, what does that kind of life look like? And as Jesus is teaching this, so think about he, he's here, he's sitting down or standing up, and he says, hey, let me ask you this sort of theological question about the Messiah, who's the king. They're like, okay, so that's who the king is. And then he says, as everyone's listening, here's what's actually going to keep you from the king. These people that even think they're following the king, but are not. Then he's going to give us an illustration of what it actually looks like to come to him as king. It says he looked up. So as he's teaching, he then looks up and he's in the temple teaching. He looked up and he saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. So in the temple they had, as I was doing the research on this, they had these kind of like 13 different trumpet looking receptacles that the money would go into. He saw them, they didn't have, you know, online giving and credit cards and all that back then, so they have trumpets. Um, And they're dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. And literally, these are like an eighth of a penny. So two-eighths of a penny total is what she drops in. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. What does coming to the king look like? So if you think about this scene, you've got rich people that are coming and you've got these receptacle things. They're dropping in their money. You can hear it, right? You hear this loud, I mean, it it was a visible public thing. Today our giving is very private thing, but at this time it was, Jesus is saying, he's watching it. They're dropping in loads of money. Otherwise, he wouldn't know that they're rich, right? They're dropping in loads of cash. And obviously, probably the people around them are going, wow, that's so awesome, right? And then the widow comes and you can barely hear her money go in. I mean, imagine if we had big old buckets up here and said, everyone bring, and someone came and dropped in two pennies. Probably, No one here would go, praise the Lord, right? But if somebody came, and usually this is what they do, right? When someone donates something big and they have a giant check and it says the name, you know, I just want to carry one of those around that's like a dollar, you know, and just be like, (laughs) but you just, it's like, I'm donating $5 million and people applaud and like, wow. Jesus says both people gave, but there was a, a difference in how they came to the king. Both of them gave, both of them came to the king, 
but there was a difference in how they came. What does it look like to come to the king? And here's the key. She did not just come in her actions. They both did the same action. She did not only come in her deeds, but she came with her heart. And it says this about her. It says that she gave all she had to live on. Now, slow down on that. She gave all she had to live on. That's a lot. She gave her life, right? She gave everything. She gave all she had to, and she had two coins. She could have kept one of them. No one would have, no one would have said, no one would have judged her otherwise. She gave everything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine giving in such a way that it literally is everything? All she had to live on? Jesus looks at both of these givings, both of these comings, and he looks at her and says, the way that she came to the king was different. The way that she came to God in his temple, in his presence, was different. She gave everything. What does this mean for how we come to the king? Now, this isn't really a sermon about money, but Jesus uses money as an illustration, and I think it's helpful for us to even think about, which is why he brings it up. Because money is often such a revealer of how we do come to the king. This is why Jesus uses it in this case as an illustration. So let's just talk about what this looks like for us. First, it means this. If you are poor, if you're a widow, if you are destitute, God sees that. And even if you giving to God, if other people saw it, they might belittle you, they might judge you, they might think you're unfaithful. God sees what she did and says, wow, and highly honors and values it. That's one of the first truths that's important to see from this because she came giving all her heart. But the reality is that's not most of us. Most of us aren't destitute widows with two pennies, right? That's not most of us here. That might be some of you, but that's not most of us. And Jesus' point here in what it looks like to come to the king has kind of this double edge to it. That if you only kind of look at one side of it, you go, yeah, and then miss the other side. Because part of what Jesus is saying is this, how much you give doesn't matter. And every American Christian says, amen, that's right. He says, how much you give doesn't matter. It's not about the amount, but that's not the full story. Because Jesus says, you could also give tons and tons and tons and tons and it not mean anything. And you know what the problem was with their giving? It was this. They gave out of their surplus. Now here's what that means, which if, if we let God speak to us, for most of us, should probably be convicting. It means this. They gave what was left. Even though it was tons. Like, if Bill Gates comes in here and gives us a million dollars, most of us are going to go, wow! I mean, Bill, if you're listening, I will accept it. <laughs> right? Most of us are going to go, wow! But that is nothing to him. It's literally nothing. It's, he could wipe himself with that, right? I mean, it's sorry to be graphic. It's nothing. It's just like, it's nothing to him. And a widow giving two pennies is so much more. But most of us are not the extreme of a widow or Bill Gates, but we give out of what's left over. We give 
We, we do the things we want with our time. We do the things we want with our money. We build our life. We buy our houses. We pay for school and activities and entertainment. And we do all of these things and food and fashion and whatever else. We do all of this stuff. Netflix, subscription, everything. And then we say, God, what do I have left to give to you? And we give out of the surplus. That is how... Most often, we think about generosity and giving, and it's wicked and evil, even if you give millions of dollars. Because what Jesus says is he wants us to give from our heart. He wants us to give from our heart. He wants us to give like the widow, which means this, it doesn't matter how much you give. Which means if you're destitute and poor, God sees the pennies and says, wow, because we gave from our heart. And if we are wealthy and rich like Bill Gates, God says, disgusting, just a show. And if we're somewhere in the middle, middle class, upper middle class, somewhere here, but we're not giving, because it's, I'm giving my all. This cost me. Then Jesus wants us to see that the way we come to the king needs to change. Now, this is bigger than money. But Jesus uses money as an illustration. About the whole way that we come to the king. Look, you, you, gotta, you have to ask yourself, right? What does my giving show about the way I feel about the king? What does my giving show about my heart? What does it show? Because like other people saw the rich person and they would applaud, right? But God sees our hearts. What does my giving show about my heart? Jesus says it speaks. It does say something. It speaks and speaks very clear to him. Our whole posture of what it looks like to come to the king, Jesus is saying should be coming with our whole heart. That we are saying, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving in such a way that I, it is sacrificial. It cost me. That woman, and I don't think God's call on all of our life is to literally give everything we have, but that's the heart. The heart should be, I am giving all to you. You are my king. I mean, if you think about it, don't you want that heart? I know it can be scary to think about like living like that widow or giving in such a way like that, but if you think about it, don't you want that heart? Don't you want a heart that's free from what I look like to other people or free from kind of focusing on myself or free from um, my rights and, well, this money belongs to me or I need it for this. or Don't you want to be free from just kind of going through the motions even? But to actually have a heart that is, I want to give everything to him. Don't you want that heart? I know I do. I want that heart to not be concerned at all about all the externals, but to just say, I want to give everything to you, whether that's time or money or choices, to know I'm not the king, but I want to honor and give my all to the king. Imagine how much joy you have in your life from that. Imagine how much endurance you have to just keep going when you're focused not on yourself, but on him. Imagine how freeing it is not to have to be seen and noticed, but to just say, I'm doing this for him. Living with that kind of heart, I imagine that widow and the freedom she had knowing everyone's going to think I'm stingy and greedy and I don't care. I'm dropping in my pennies. I'm just the freedom to live before the king and say, I want my all to go towards you. I know I want that. And really the final thing I want us to look at is this. How can we then come to the king like this? What, what can create that heart in us? How can we have that freeing posture 
that says, I don't have to be the king. You're the king, so I give my all to you. I don't have to be concerned about what I'm getting. Instead, I'm able to just give to you. That's a freeing mentality. How can we have that? Why did she have it? And we go back to Psalm 110. It said this, this line said, your people will volunteer on your day of battle. And that word for volunteer is actually the same word that is used for the free will offerings financially all throughout the Old Testament and in the New. That's the same language, the same word about free will offerings, giving, the same very thing that she was doing. See, she was living this out. Your people will give free will offerings on your day of battle. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. See, why did she come to the king giving everything, offering herself, offering, and she wasn't just offering her money, right? Because it was all she had to live on. So she was offering her whole self. Why did she do that? Because like the people here in Psalm 110 that Jesus was just talking about, she saw who the king was. The reason these people give themselves and volunteer on the day of battle is because they see who this king is. She must have seen who he is and said, I see who you are as I'm coming to the temple and I entrust myself to you. That's what that act is, right? I I am giving everything I have to you, which means I'm putting myself in your hands. I'm entrusting myself to your goodness. I'm entrusting myself to your mercy. I'm entrusting myself to your faithfulness. I'm entrusting myself to your promises. I'm trusting myself to your power. I'm entrusting myself to your priestliness and presence with me. I'm entrusting myself to you. So I'm able to give my all to you because I see who you are as this king. I trust who you are as this king. She saw that. She saw what Psalm 110 talks about. Now here's the amazing thing. You and I have that much clearer than she does. Because we have Jesus, and we see who Psalm 110 was actually about. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. They use it, the New Testament writers use it over and over again to say, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. You know that one that was going to come with all power and defeat his enemies? That's Jesus. He defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated death. And listen, when we see Jesus like that, we volunteer. We say, okay, I want to give you my all because you're the king with all power that used that power to defeat Satan, that used that power to defeat sin and is defeating sin in my life. Use that power to defeat death, which means that death has lost its sting, which means it's painful, but it's not ultimate. It can't take away the very best from us. It opens us to life with him forever. Jesus is the one that defeats all of his enemies. Jesus is the faithful priest who is with us. Hebrews says he is the high priest that knows us and understands us and is better than a human priest because he's without sin. And yet he did walk as a human. So he knows us and loves us. How can we come to the king like she did? It's as you see him as all-powerful, all-loving, present, faithful, and we say, okay, then I'm willing to put my life in your hands. I'm willing to entrust myself to you. We don't want to deny the king's presence in our life or his power in our life. You and I want to experience a kingdom community, but we can't have that without submitting to the king, letting him lead our life. I, I know I don't want this, and I, and I believe you don't want either to just say, I'm going to live a Christian life, but kind of begrudgingly. We want the heart that says, I give myself to the king. And it's only as we see him like she saw him that we volunteer, that in free will we give ourselves. When we take communion, what we're remembering is this king that doesn't just call us to give our all to him, but that gave his all to us. 
His body was broken. His blood was shed. That's what we remember through taking the bread and the juice. We remember he gave his all to us. And when someone does that for us, we can entrust our life into their hands. When we know someone is that faithful, when we know someone is that powerful, someone is that near, then we can entrust our life to them. That's part of why we take communion is to remember, you've given everything to me. You gave your all to me. You gave your life to me. You gave your heart to me. And so, yes, I want to give myself to you. So as we take communion, I want you to consider these things and pray these things. Maybe it's a prayer of confession to say, Jesus, I, I, I haven't given my all to you. I do want to be king. Maybe that's what it is, as a prayer to say, God, forgive me. And he does. He died to forgive us taking his role as king. Maybe it's prayers to say, God, remind me again who you are. Show me again who you are so that I see what she saw and then worship and give like she did. Maybe, you know, I would encourage you even just as you pray to say these words. To say, I volunteer. I, I give myself to you. I, I give myself to you. All that I am. I don't just want my actions. I don't just want some of it. I don't just want what people see. To say to him, I give all to you. Because you gave all to me. Take some time. Pray those prayers. Let God speak to your heart. And then we will sing in response to that. What if we loved him, gave him our all? What if we wanted him as king in our life? Then we experience kingdom community that he has for us. Father, I thank you that you gave to us everything. God, you gave us your son, first of all. And Jesus, you gave willingly your life. You said that you laid down your life freely. No one took it from you. You gave everything to us. You are the king with all power and all authority, and yet the king that humbled himself to serve us, to change us, to give us the gift of a transformed existence and community. And so I pray that you would make these truths even more real to our hearts as we pray. In your name, amen.